Hi, welcome to Cracked, for readers by readers, where we are cracking minds, hearts, spirits, and spines, one author at a time. I'm your host, Monique. The inspiration behind the podcast is twofold. First, it's an introduction to a diverse range of authors through their work. In each episode, readers and I explore anywhere between four to six novels by the same author, searching for themes and life lessons or influences from their work. Second, it's a chance to expand our minds, open our hearts, and let our spirits fly by exploring how these books and ideas help to broaden the way we move through our world and our individual realities. So I invite you to join us as we get cracked. Hello, and welcome to Cracked. My name is Monique, and I'll be your host for today's episode. We are recording episode four, and the author we're discussing today is Octavia Butler. I cannot even begin to express my deep gratitude for this author, for the subjects that she covers. I suppose science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, parable, storytelling that she does. And you, you take your pick. Anyway, Octavia Estelle Butler, born June 22nd in Pasadena, California, died February, sorry, June 22nd, 1947 in Pasadena, California, and died in 2006 in Lake Forest Park, Washington. She was a writer uh, and won the Nebula Award for one of the books we're going to be discussing today on the podcast. I am joined today by today by a dear friend, Sarah Shaneman. Sarah is uh, so special to me, and it is such an incredible moment to share and get cracked together. Uh, this author really got to heart, mind, and spirit with her work. And I hope that through our discussion of just three of her works, that it inspires you. That maybe you might want to pick up one of the three, and that might be your pathway into Octavia. Now, we got so wrapped up into so many of the conversations and thoughts that are within these books, and yet we still got nowhere near covering everything. We did our best. However, there is still so much left to digest in the tellings of these stories that I assure you that no matter what we said, we haven't spoiled anything for you as far as the feelings that will come with uh, reading any of these three. And we're glad you're here with us. So let's get cracked. Welcome to Cracked. And Today, joining me, I'm sorry, I'm so excited, is my dear friend, Sarah Shaneman. Yeah. <laughs> so Sarah and I met, uh, take a wild guess, through yoga. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we uh, traveled together for an extended period of time mm -hmm. for yoga. <laughs> and yeah, we're, and you know what? Now we're just friends outside of yoga. 
Which yeah. is awesome. <laughs> Sarah, do you yeah, want to share a little awesome. about yourself or the readings or us <laughs> before we get started? Totally. Um, yeah. Met Monique through yoga. Such an awesome connection. And then um, also one of my few friends that reads a copious amount of books, which is so great because like, you can never have enough of those. So true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, Octavia E. Butler. I'm so happy that you introduced this author to me because, wow, what a great right? author. Oh, man, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. May wow. as well get stuck in, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So what do you, let's go back a little bit before we jump into Octavia. What do you usually mm -hmm. read? Because you do read a lot yourself. That's why I asked you about this in the first place. <laughs> totally. So um, not ashamed of this. I read a lot of health um, self-help books all the time. Um, but I, like, I like binge read romance novels. Oh my God. I heart you. <laughs> I heart you. Okay. Thank you. It's like, it's like my dirty little pleasure. I like, I probably take down like one or two oh. a week. It's insane. Oh my gosh. I think the heart just got bigger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I admit I don't read romance novels as often, but now that I know mm -hmm. that, I'm super like stoked and like already planning the next episode with you, etc. Oh yeah, I probably have read okay. them all. I could even recommend okay. a ton. <laughs> I'm good. But nice. yeah, um, romance novels and and fantasy novels too. If there's ever like a fantasy novel author that you want to crunch three books, okay. I will. I will crunch those books. <gasps> Love it. Done and done her. Yeah. I've probably crunched a fair good already, so it'll be it'll be awesome to oh revisit. Oh my gosh, <laughs> uh, I love it. Okay, so okay. usually read romance, a little bit of fantasy, and a heck a lot of like uh, personal development is what I would call it, because I, I know some. Yeah, and sociology. Yeah, books too. that's true. I you love... do read a lot of sociology. Yeah, yeah. and I love that sort of... stuff. Really weird combo. <laughs> It's really weird reading combo there. What's the motivation, would you say, behind each one? I'm just curious. Romance is just like a fun, guilty pleasure when I just don't want to think. And then when it comes to personal development, that's just like trying to broaden my mind. And then sociology is just like the study of humans, why we are the way we are. So like the personal development is de developing me. The sociology is just like, oh, okay, this is the culture we live in. This is why we do the crazy things we do, and this is how we act as a society as a whole. Fascinating. So that's the stuff oh that my I gosh. read. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So had you heard of Octavia Butler before this? I hadn't. And um, it's so interesting because um, in terms of like this thinking back on um, curriculum books for uh, school, I feel like this would have been such a prevalent series to study in school particularly because like you know brave new world like those kind of books like they're very very interesting george orwell very interesting but this is a pretty modern like still a little bit outdated but very modern post-apocalyptic novel that deals with so many societal issues that are still very prevalent I'm surprised they don't like swap that stuff out Oh, oh my more. God, if only they would, <laughs> because, you know, Brave New World, uh, I didn't read that in school, I read that later, but 1984, mm -hmm. if you didn't get mm -hmm. Brave New World, you got 1984, and you yes. got Heart of Darkness usually somewhere in there. 
And I didn't get, I didn't read that one. Oh, uh, personally, I would not say that you missed out, but I'm sure okay. there are those out there who would disagree. <laughs> I, was, I was the beholder. I was not a fan of Conrad. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, at or Apocalypse Now, the film version. So, no, neither of those is for me. Sweet. I'll okay. just leave those yeah. where they are then. <laughs> um, so, w- let's talk about which books we read, because incidentally for this one, it seems we read the same three books, which is awesome. <laughs> So great. It was all that was available in the library to me. <laughs> Same here. So, yeah. That's why I was like, like, um, Unexpected Stories popped up pretty much mid when I was reading um, Parable of the Talents. So I was like, okay, well, that's, 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 yeah. that's done. The podcast is coming up. So <laughs> yes. a part I, of me was like, maybe I can crunch it in time, but no. That's so funny. I had the same thought. I was like, maybe I'll just read it, but we won't talk about it on the podcast because I also got it rather late. And I thought, oh, that's all right. I'm just going to let it let it lie. Just mm-hmm. let it lie. Yeah. So you read Kindred. Do you want, why don't I start and I'll tell a bit about Kindred. And then do you want to yeah. talk about the other two? Because you, I don't Sounds think you can good. really separate them. No, yeah, it's so, hard to separate yeah. them. Yeah. So I actually... The first time I came across Octavia Butler, I read Parable of the Sower, and it was for book club. And I didn't know that there was a sequel, which is why I did not read Talents back in the day. I don't remember how many years ago this was. And some years later, I think it was probably three years ago, I was visiting a plantation in Louisiana, and I came across Kindred. And it's such a beautiful cover, and it was Octavia Butler, so I bought the book right away. Um, Kindred really spoke to me like I dug in that book moved fast really fast Mm. in her storytelling and it was I think it was eye-opening for me because Kindred is the story of Dana and her husband Kevin I think his name was yeah Kevin. Kevin and Dana suddenly starts traveling back in time just before the anniversary of the emancipation I think just before July 4th or Juneteenth around there Mm -hmm. and It's so mind-blowing to me because whenever we encounter stories of time travel, even today, they are always white characters going back into ridiculous time periods where anyone who is non-white or mixed would never want to set foot, generally. 100%. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's, It's why, although I love romance novels, I seldom read historical ones because I just wouldn't want to be in that time period. Exactly. I mean, and we can like name a few like Outlander. There's a Pride and Prejudice spinoff. Actually, mm-hmm. there's a Pride and Prejudice spinoff with uh, Carrie What's Her Face. But there's a scene where she comes back to the present day London and says to her black roommate, hey, why don't you come with me? And her black roommate looks at her and is like, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> and it's not to say that there weren't um, black people in this space at that time because there were the problem is that the treatment today and this is not saying a whole heap but it is significantly better than it was then Mm -hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. you just don't want to and here we've got this book or we've got dana who's traveling from 1976 san francisco to what is it 1800s yeah um 1800s massachusetts i think yeah and So she's a slave. She's yeah. back. She's because she's black. She's not white. And she's time traveling to antebellum. I feel like it was Massachusetts. 
and there was still slaveholding because it was well before the Civil War and and then some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's on this plantation having to deal with on these multiple occurrences of time travel, the grandfather paradox, which is the best mm-hmm. part of time travel. Of yes. if something happens to one of your relatives, what happens to you in the future? Question. So mm-hmm. incredibly fascinating book. Um, I won't tell too much more because we're going to chat about it in a second. And mm-hmm. some of the, I guess, the peak moments or moments that struck us from the book. But that one was the first time I encountered that. And that was enough. I loved Octavia Butler more because of Kindred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was such a good book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, that was such a good book. <laughs> I felt so pulled in so many directions <laughs> with that book. I was telling Henry at one point, my husband, I was just like, this book is just so, like, my heart is racing right now. <laughs> it was so intense. Oh, and she takes you on this, this such a... Am I allowed to get just straight into the... Yeah, okay. She takes you on such a mental journey because, you know, this the book is from Dana's perspective and she's, as a black woman, that's just been automatically assumed to be, yeah, free, but still, you don't have that many rights, even back then, whether you're free or not, and they can be taken away from you in an instant. And it's... And she talks about how easily she actually falls into that role as a mechanism of survival and it's so crazy too because at one moment I even kind of felt for Rufus her ancestor which was so crazy because he genuinely loved the woman that he wanted to be with in a very destructive way but when you hear about his upbringing and that the way the world was back then you're kind of like oh if you could have been like a white modern man, maybe you could have turned out decent. I don't know. Hard to say. <laughs> it's interesting because when you think about his relationship or relationship, sorry, more of his obsession with the object of his affection, we see some mm. of that today where there is this entitlement, not specific to white men, but specific to men in general, where there mm. can be that destructive obsession over a particular female. And they have difficulty with understanding that that is not love. That is true. That's true. That's very true. I think from my perspective, it's more just like you can't have that kind of power over your partner. Like it's just he's doomed from the start. And and he like, of course, he just makes all the worst decisions. And you can she writes the conflict in him really well. My. Really well. In all of them, actually. So we should all of them. We should dive into that in a second. But let's clarify yeah. Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents because, oddly enough, yes. all of our books are related. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to let you tell a little bit about Lauren's story. <laughs> okay. So um, Lauren, I'm not going to try and say the rest of her name. Hola, hola Mina. Hola Mina. Hola, Mina. I don't remember the rest of... I don't remember her middle name right now. <laughs> so she gets um, raised by a preacher, would you call him? Oh, no, that's her daughter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah you know, you're right. Her, her father, father was a preacher. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember his first yeah. name. 
I can't remember his first name either. But anyway, she's in this kind of also apocalyptic, supposed to be at the time futuristic um, world. And she's in pretty much a gated community. And um, her father is religious and kind of well-known and well-respected. But she, interestingly enough, starts questioning God and starts developing her own set of beliefs that she calls little truths that she's discovered. Um, Anyways, things are getting worse societal-wise. And eventually the gated community gets broken into and and it forces her and just the other two survivors from her community out onto the streets where they eventually make their way north in the hopes of a better life. Um, there, when we start to bleed into talents, um, they actually establish a community based on the belief systems that she created at a very young age. Pretty prophetic <laughs> belief system for someone who's that young to have created. But wow, I don't think my thoughts were that deep when I was little. Um, and then the um, things kind of actually have escalated. They elect the United States, elects a president who bears oh, yeah. frighteningly close similarities to Trump in some way. <laughs> <laughs> there are too many in this book between many. the slogan and parable of the talents make america great the great? andrew oh jarrett character who's the president of the united states for one term the mm-hmm. the what they call the pox which is that the period pox, yeah. from what i guess 1918 to 2035 or 33ish or something yeah like, this is all yeah. our current time period <laughs> Like, the date overlap is crazy similar. It's so interesting to be reading this book right now. Yes. (laughs) And, like, disease is prevalent, too, because, like, the the populace, um, because of just the downfall of America, essentially, the populace is mostly poor. There's There's very little middle class. You're either, like, super ridiculously wealthy or you're dirt poor. And... And yeah, they refer to this time period as the pox. And of course, Jarrett, in this distressing time, gets elected because everyone's terrified and his his entire campaign is fear-based. And um, and yeah, he, he's got this group of very religious, zealous followers that call themselves the Crusaders and they essentially just completely trash and enslave her entire community that she has built. It's... <sighs> And they, and I'm a mom, they take away all the kids. Yes. Whoa. All the prepubescent <laughs> children. So we're talking 12 and younger. Gone. Gone. Like. And no records. Ooh, that was. You don't know where. Okay. We need, we're going to talk about that mom stuff as well, because there were some things that happened near the end where I was like, I empathized with her daughter. I'm going to call her daughter Very Larkin, much. because as far as I'm concerned, that's her daughter's name. And, um, and I also completely in some ways more so, even though I don't have children, I more so empathize with where Lauren stood in relation to her third family member. Yeah. That was some moments when I listened to that part. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, those some moments. Okay. There was, what an uncomfortable book. Yes. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm so glad I leaned into it and like finished it but man 
That's an uncomfortable book. There were some <laughs> moments. Oh my gosh, what was happening here? <laughs> <laughs> what was happening here? You have Dana, who is in 1976, San Francisco, California, completely petrified to leave her house mm-hmm. after this starts happening because she can't mm-hmm. control the way the time travel is happening. She doesn't know when it's going to happen. And she's got this bag that, does she tie it to her waist or her wrist or something? So yeah. it's always there, her go bag after the set, the first yeah. trip or after the first or the second trip, because she always gets there. And I think it was the second one. I think it was the second one. And she like packs no, a few yeah. things. Yeah. No, it was the, it was the third trip that she finally had it with her. Cause the second one was the fire. Right, right. And the first one was the pond. And it was because the pond and the fire happened so close together that she did not have any time on the the 1976 side to be prepared. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So basically, as we know, Dana is time traveling from California to meet Rufus Whalen, who is an ancestor of hers. It is Rufus, I believe. No, I can't remember the dad's name. (laughs) But, um, it is Rufus. Yeah, Rufus Whalen. Tom. Tom Whalen. Yeah. And so she's freaking out. I'd be freaking mm-hmm. out too. You'd be lucky if you got me to leave the room in my house that I was in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't take her very long, I think. It's after the second trip that she realizes who Rufus is. Because I think the first time, it's always whenever he's in trouble that she ends up being pulled into the past. And boy's got a knack for getting into trouble. Yes, he does. Physical, death, too close for proximity sort of trouble. Yeah. 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 So really fascinating. So with her story, it's like if either one of us were to go back in time to a period where slavery, like that... Field, hand, house, slave period that we refer to as the um, antebellum South often uh, existed. Mm -hmm. And Butler really walks you through beautifully the mental hoops that Dana has to jump through in order to survive in that period because she knows enough and she certainly every time she goes back to California she starts learning more because she has Kevin go to the mm-hmm. library and get all the books he can for her mm-hmm. so that she understands what's happening and what's in this past time period well I'm sorry I, I can't even I'm gonna let you talk about the slavery part <laughs> so <laughs> I can't even <clears throat> yeah um well yeah so she goes back and she essentially meets her ancestors um who are slaves one of them was a free woman and who runs away with her husband yeah and ends up a slave just ends up a slave like yeah. like run down by dogs oh my gosh yeah like and that's that and, was alice that's part of that obsessive mm-hmm. love that rufus had for her because he was a slave holder he was yeah, a slave holder yeah, he was the slaver <laughs> He, um, she came back because, um, he was essentially trying to rape her and her husband found, found them and was beating justfully so him up, but he was not a free man. So he had zero entitlement to protect his wife and yeah. And Rufus as a slaveholder had felt very much entitled to take what he wanted and could not, it's a rough, 
It's a rough book. And Rufus could not understand why this, because they had been friends when they were children, just to put a little bit more context around that. Mm -hmm. He couldn't understand why Alice didn't feel that way about him now. But Mm -hmm. so she's free. Her husband was enslaved. Rufus is a slaveholder, so he's free-ish in a sense of the time period. Um, Mm -hmm. And when she gets caught, she ends up enslaved by Rufus. And how terrible is that to be born free and then end up enslaved? And your so terrible. Her children end up enslaved. Enslaved too. Yeah, because I guess. Yeah, back then, if the woman who bears the children is free, the children are free. If not, yeah, then they're they're born slaves. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and the way she talks about too, how even like Tom Whalen, right, was was like pleased when the slaves got together and they had children, and because then it meant they had more control over them, and then they were also like breeding, right? Essentially, more slaves. Well. They had the cook in the cookhouse who at one point, I think Dana, I think she did meditate about whether um, that cook had ever considered poisoning the family. And mm-hmm. part of the reason she wouldn't is because one of her children was still left on the plantation because yes. otherwise Tom had sold the other ones basically down the river. I guess that's where mm-hmm. that saying might come from to sell someone down, down the, river. the river. Oh, disturbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Were you able to mentally put your space, your head in Dana's space when she was in the past in the 1800s? Yeah, 1800s-ish. Yeah. It was so... I Yeah. I Well, I felt like the author did a good job of doing it. Like, um, the internal dialogue, the reactions. Man, I have no idea what I would have done in a position back then like but do you remember the point when the cook basically said to dana she said oh watch watch yourself because she's basically becoming sort of a mammy character who's constantly caring for rufus has all of this freedom around the plantation and she's at one point doesn't really fit in with the other enslaved peoples on that plantation and but this is her survival she has to keep Rufus on side in many ways because that's how she gains some of the leeways, I guess, for some of the other enslaved peoples. Yeah. And also she, she, like she's got the, like the grandfather theory to think about, right? She needs to keep Rufus alive to essentially have sex with Alice unwantingly so that her ancestors can be born. What a difficult position to be in. Right? Like Because this is entirely her own survival that she's concerned with. Because even at the moment when Rufus wants Alice to come to his bed, or basically after she's recovered and so on, and he wants to have his way with her, he enlists Dana. He's like, hey, help me get her into my bed. And she struggles with that. She She struggles. Which is fair. But the what I found, I think, most disturbing, and Dana finds it disturbing in the story as well, is that moment when she's watching the enslaved children play under the tree. And what game are they playing? 
but auction they're block. selling the woman. Yeah. They're selling each other. One person is playing the auction master and she, and that was a point when Kevin had come back with her. I don't think mm-hmm. Kevin saw it, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was like they were preparing for the lives that they were going to be allowed to lead because they knew what those lives were. Yeah. That was so crazy. And it was so interesting too, that she involved Kevin and coming back with her. She didn't want to. <laughs> that was a mistake. It was interesting. Yeah, the author involved Kevin. But Dana, yeah. you could tell, was fighting at every turn and moment to keep him from coming back. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because what a mind trip, right? He's yeah. a white man. Um, and, like, it's interesting, though. Like, obviously, he stays stays true which is beautiful i i actually really love the romances that octavia e butler writes into her novels they're so great they're really beautiful (laughs) um but the poor dude gets stuck there what was it five years to the point yeah he adopts because dana stays for months weeks sometimes a few years at a time but she at least will her body will come back Whereas he mm-hmm. has none of this tie to that place and that time period. Yeah. So he depends on her to come back and forth. And when yes. he goes back with her, it's entirely by accident. She tried to push him away. Um, but he was insistent, which is very romantic, yes. very sweet. But then, of course, what they fear is going to happen is that he, he gets stuck there. He, she gets beaten for teaching a slave to read. And because her life is threatened, that's what triggers her to come back home. Yeah. And yeah. And he gets, he doesn't get to her in time. So he, oh man, that moment was intense. Can you just imagine that? I really want to see this film. I'm ready to cast it. I'm ready to see it on screen. (laughs) So what's fascinating is, yeah, Kevin, I think he'd be McSteamy from Grey's Anatomy because they describe Mm. him as having early graying hair. Anyway. Totally McSteamy. <laughs> anyway. So five years that Kevin spends in that time period. And he does spend a good bit of it on the plantation. But he finds that he has to leave. And he leaves word with uh, both, I think, Tom and Rufus Whalen of where he is. So he'll write back occasionally just waiting for when Dana comes back. Because they understand, Rufus at least, knows from early on. Kind of not who she is exactly, but where she's from, really. Yes. Even if he doesn't fully understand it, um, it the significance of it. And yes. he understands, therefore, where Kevin is from and why they're married. And I, I do wonder if in some ways the fact of knowing that Dana and Kevin were married might have influenced his uh, amorous feelings towards Alice. Thinking, well, if Kevin can do it, then I can do it too not understanding that in 1976 Kevin has zero power over Dana and any choices she made to be with Kevin were her own free choices made. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. She's his role model and and he ends up like having a really weird and tumultuous relationship with her too. Like Oh yes. <laughs> so so messed up in so many ways. So odd. So mm-hmm. one of the deals with Kevin, I know, is because he spends longer in that time period, he ends up doing a little traveling around. 
and actually helping with the Underground Railroad simply because, mm. I mean, that's who he is. It, no, yes. There's no white male in 1976 California who's going to willingly choose to marry a black woman who's going to go back, generally, I would like to think, to this time period and not involve themselves in the Underground Railroad uh, after yes. seeing the pieces that he does see, which is not nearly that much because... There was a point where Dana says, well, they never called you out to see the whippings because as an enslaved person, all of them get pulled together every time a slave gets whipped. But Kevin, who's in the main house, doesn't see any of those, really. So he still, in some ways, for a moment, begins to think that, oh, it's okay. And maybe that's why she keeps him there longer, is that he needs to see more. in order to understand yeah. how wrong and how degrading to the spirit. Because <laughs> I think at one point she calls it a dulling of the senses that makes someone an enslaved person. <laughs> she talks about fighting that so hard. And and that internal dialogue of, of where she can, at first she feels like an, like an actor, you know, she's putting on this role. But then you're, she's there for so long months and she can feel herself changing and and becoming what they expect her to become which is pretty much subservient right and she does the small things that she can to to still feel to still feel like a free woman still try and convince Rufus to educate some of the people right some of the slave children and you know that moment where she she ends up getting a whipping because she's teaching one of the kids to read like yeah it's so these small little things that she does to try and consciously stay who she is in a time when yeah she's just not free it's so interesting and hard speaking of that sense of her feeling herself changing to mold to the expectations that the other individuals within the society have of her. And then going back to my comment about the dulling of the senses and the children who are enacting the lives that they have seen are before them. What were your thoughts around how we ourselves today in our society put limits either upon others or upon ourselves? And then the resulting actions of those individuals as they react to sort of the expectations what has that been like in your life Ooh, loaded question (laughs) well i think i think when it comes to today's society um i'm it's tough for me to say because i come from like a lot of privilege so and i think there are so many things in our society today, particularly pertaining to technology, that you could almost say dull our senses in the sense that like even even Google search engine, right? It, it customizes itself so that you only see what you want to see. Talk about putting yourself into your own little narrow, narrow yeah. road, <laughs> narrow little box, right? Um, and it's and, and and it's interesting because um that that act of the children 
playing, right? Playing out their lifespans. That's normalizing things that shouldn't shouldn't be normalized. And I think seeing um, alarming stuff like this and actually like inviting in like stuff that shocks you is how you kind of get out of the dull senses. Um, for my personal opinion, so that's why I kind of love reading books like this because it's like, oh, whoa, switch up my world. <laughs> and I even Googled, I even Googled, like, does slavery still exist today? And of course it does in multiple areas of the world. And in fact, for way cheaper too, like, it's, oh my gosh, in parts of Asia, like, you can buy a slave for 90 bucks. That is crazy. Oh, so... I feel like I want to take two directions here with your comments. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to put the slavery and today's slavery on hold because I feel like that is a parable of the talents conversation when she starts talking about the yes. company sites and the company cities. Mm-hmm. But I oh am going to take a moment on that, that auction block factor and how it comes up today. If you think about back when we were children, what kind of games a lot of us played, some of us played school where the girl was the teacher. Some of us played house where someone was the mom and had to take care of the house because of what we saw our parents doing. And these children playing auction, the enslaved individual, is really no different from some of the things that we do today. And so I have many, many friends who have children and they have these conversations about not wanting to lock their children into gender binaries of woman stays home and man goes to work sort of deal. And Mm -hmm. this moment in this book really um, solidified that understanding for me of what it is they're striving for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really good point. I actually, um, cause I did um, like a social justice course just to one again, expand my mind and <laughs> ever since doing that course, the books that I read to my kid and like, you know, he's pointing at a figure in a dress and I'm instantly like, that's a girl. And then I'm thinking, ooh, gender stereotypes. Or let's just say that's a person in a dress, maybe. <laughs> like it's a lot more complicated but it's if you're trying to battle gender stereotypes, then you kind of have to go with more complicated. And and yeah, and it and we're really stuck in them. I was kind of fortunate in the sense that my parents were both pretty like hardworking adults, and I actually spent more time playing outside than anything else. And I was a tomboy for most of my life growing up, but. Yeah, small things like that. Like I can I can see the ways in which I as a mom am reinforcing it or actively trying to battle it. And I feel like the only way you can break out of that the normalizing of a stereotype is to actively battle it because it's hardwired into yourself and the only way you can really like promote real change is to to right. fight for it. Well, even <laughs> now because you're involved as a stay-at-home CEO right now and so that's what your son grows up with. And he's like, oh, this is what it yeah. should be. And it makes sense. And I have so many friends who yeah. do the same thing. 
they're stay-at-home CEOs, mm-hmm. CEOs, and their children will go up seeing mom taking care of the house while dad goes out to work. And it's so strange to me because that was not my upbringing, not my upbringing at all. Mm-hmm. Mom went to work just as often as dad went to work. And I, because of that, I came to understand that she was, she did that because that made her a better mother. She was not um, the type mm-hmm. of mother who could stay home 24-7 and just take care of the kids. She did it for a few years here and there, but it was very clear that she loved her job. She loved us. There was mm-hmm. never any question for me of that, but she absolutely loved her work as well. And so it, it made sense. And I never had a sense of her going to work is wrong, or her choosing to stay home is wrong because I saw both. And it seemed very clear to me that it was best for the couple and in particular for the woman or the man in the relationship to decide what made them a better person, which is similar to what you've done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am at home because I absolutely love it, but I definitely have a passion project that I, that I work on and that I dedicate time to. Oh, this next comment might get into the sewer a bit or the talents a bit. So she has, she's a mom and she like desperately wants to be a mom and her baby is just taken away from her. Um, and obviously there's resentments from the daughter, understandably, towards this passion of hers. But I feel like as a parent, having a passion is good because at some point you have to let go of your child to become their own person. And, and modeling that you have something in your life that drives you, uh, I think is, is really, really beneficial. Obviously, there's a balance, like so many other things in a person's life. There has to be a balance. Um, and, and I don't even no, know. No, I, I love this. Yeah. So can we share <laughs> a little bit of what your passion is? And... At the same time, so we're going to just couch, so we're just talking about Earthseed in this case, which is Parable of the Talents. Yeah. Larkin appears for the first time in Parable of the Talents. In Parable of the Sower, it's entirely narrated by Lauren Olamina, who is, mm-hmm. I think, 15 when the book starts, and I significantly so, yes. ages over the period of the two books. I think she's about 17 or 18 yes. when Ro- their, Robello 18, is destroyed and they, they get... have to leave <laughs> when she's on the road. Right, she's she's eighteen when they start right. eighteen. Yeah, I so think. Yeah, yeah, she's on the road by yeah. eighteen. So yes, the, as you were saying, her thinkings, her meditations, I suppose, on God and God as change begin at the, around the age of fifteen, if not a little bit earlier. <laughs> I think a little bit earlier. I think she'd already started them, which is crazy because they're very they're very thoughtful. They sure are. I love uh, that concept because yeah. when you hear from the beginning, because I think the sort of the founding tenant that she keeps coming back to for this yeah. earth seed movement is that God has changed. Mm-hmm. And so you hear that and I don't, uh, myself and many people in the book immediately think Buddhism. Yes, definitely. Very Buddhist. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, I struggled with this book so many times because here you have essentially preacher's child who doesn't, and I think it was Baptist faith. I'm not sure, or denomination. 
it was some form yes. of Christianity in any case. And mm-hmm. she then forms this movement that is at times called a cult that oftentimes resembles a religion. And in many ways, even she later on refers to it as a religion. And I found it fascinating that here you're trying to leave one structured religious orientation because you don't believe in it and you're going out and you're starting another structured religious founding um, community, earth seed communities essentially, mm-hmm. that really in the book they're portrayed as being different but I think that is what makes this parable of the talents so strong is that you have Larkin there to make that critique. Thank Mm -hmm. God. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That was very, very interesting. Um, Like I, I love all the, the scripture and the quotes that she has like weaving in and out of the book. I think every single chapter pretty much starts with one of them and they're, they're really beautiful in their simplicity and like logic wise, very hard to, to, to critique, but the actual actions that play out in the, in the book, the actual traditions and, and ritual that they form around them do start crossing over into, into like a lot of a very definable religion for sure. Um, and I, I felt like there were definitely some similarities with Buddhism, like that, you know, question everything. Yes. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty grounding philosophy within, within Buddhism. And, um, you know, like Buddhism revolves a lot around suffering and acceptance and, and adaptability and the, the whole religion that she creates around God is changed. Like you need all of that in order to accept God that is change. So it's, there's a lot of similarities. The quote I was thinking of is regard with regards to change. It's later on in parable of the talents and they're beginning their essentially evangelical ministry conversion of people. That is what it is. They're going to call a spade a spade. And yeah. she says to this woman, kindness eases change, love quiets fear. That was it. And then the woman who has now been versed in some of the earth seed verses continues and says, and a sweet and powerful positive obsession blunts pain, diverts rage and engages each of us in the greatest and most, the most intense of our chosen struggles. And I thought, okay, I don't even need the rest of that. I'm good with the kindness eases change and love quiets fear. Yeah. Just that. Right? <laughs> I just thought that was beautiful because there, I mean, a lot of what these earth seeds verses are, they are truths. There's a great deal of truth mm-hmm. in each and every one of them. And it's fascinating how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget that, mm-hmm. especially let's consider this last period we've been through. We're now on the, the Q quarter one of 2021. We've just gone through all of 2020 where we have seen some of the major change that for our generation we have never seen before. 
right? Oh, yeah. And now we're wearing masks in business places, masks basically in public everywhere. We are trying our best to keep our distance from people. And when I remember when it first started back in March of last year, that people were angry. Some people I realized a few months later are still angry. And that kindness walked mm -hmm. right out the door so that going to the grocery store is a real, it's a thing <laughs> where people yeah. become snarky at you for walking the wrong way. And yes, I'm air quoting here, the wrong way down the aisle because there yeah. is no wrong or right way down the aisle anymore. And it takes me a moment because I'm not feeling angry to realize that they are angry <laughs> and they're taking their anger out on me and I'm just not having it because I don't understand why or what need there is to be angry right now. I'm like, you know what? We had to wear masks. Everything's temporary. God is change. <laughs> Honestly, when they talk about the conditions of the pox of this period in their lives after they leave Robello, Robiello, I can't even pronounce it properly, yeah. in the south of California, her it's, gated community that she yeah. knew after her father disappears slash likely dies and the gated community is taken down and she loses her four brothers in the process one lost earlier she loses her stepmom and stepmom and she's on her own but the cool thing is that in that period she had already prepared herself for this she knew this was coming she had and she, she talked totally about it knew. with her father because he knew it was coming too but mm -hmm. he was much slower about getting people to become ready for it he was trying to find softer ways of getting people on board and ready to leave while she was more so being i suppose the youth that she was at the time the teenager was like no we gotta tell him and she's she tells her friend joanne mm -hmm. and what a mistake that is <laughs> in parable of the sower oh my yes. gosh yeah yeah it's such a good example of like like how people are so willing to stick their head in the sand when it comes to fear. And like, I can make a critique cause I'm in my little cushy life. I, for all I know, I might've been just like Joanne back then being like, Oh no, don't tell me my, my place is going to get sacked and we need to prepare for like the end. Um, I, yeah. Who, who knows? Right. It was such a, it's such a different world. Um, but the, the cool thing is how it echoes in, talents when she's got her own community and and she doesn't predict its downfall like she kind of knows it's gonna happen and she's afraid it's gonna happen but nobody wants to face that that worst fear it would have been really interesting if a youth had come up to her and been like we're going right? down how strange <laughs> that she and there, there's that other parallel to her father that he's a preacher yes. she eventually becomes a preacher in her own right with a different sort of religion mm -hmm. he's like stuck a down sower. yeah a sower oh that sower a sower he's stuck in his little gated community and i'm gonna teach them slowly and we're gonna do it my way and he's the, sort of the leader in that community where she learns her leadership skills she goes over to acorn yeah. which is uh, Bancoli's land. So Bancoli being her mm. future husband, who is what, 25, 30 something odd years older than her and has land yeah. that's really well hidden in this valley. And so they think, well, we're just going to start my first earth seed community of acorn here. 
and she does exactly what her father does. She gets everything planted and sewn and so on. And of course, Andrew Jarrett's Gale Force comes through and takes them down. <laughs> Completely just wipes them out, turns them into um, a, a concentration camp. That's exactly what I was thinking when it was happening. I was just like, oh my God, they call it like a reform camp, obviously. Like, but yeah, it's it's a consecration camp, and it's and like consecration, they didn't have collars, but they have these slave collars in this book that are terrifying. <laughs> like, oh my god, talk about a new worst nightmare! <laughs> they just they elicit like an intense amount of pain if ever you do. I don't actually know from a te technological standpoint if they could ever exist. Like, I don't know how you would differentiate that. Um, that was my mind being like, well, let me tear this apart and see how I can figure out how these collars work because this one guy is controlling them all individually and I just don't see how that's working. <laughs> Anyways, point being, like, yeah, this and the stuff they do and, and then she like they the the men they're there the things that they do in the name of their god and that's interesting because that becomes part of her discourse later on when she decides when she moves from sower to talents because so i you know i grew up as i said mm -hmm. before in the catholic church so i knew this parable of the sower and the parable of the talents the parable of the talents interestingly is the one that always stayed with me the most because that's the one where I don't remember if it was supposed to be Jesus or God. Let's say the same being. Anyway, this higher being hands out, I think it was one or two talents to three different um, yes, three different servants is what they're called in the book. One goes out mm -hmm. and doubles it and brings it back and he hands all four talents, I guess it's some sort of coin, back to this higher power being. And the being says, no, you keep that. You earned it. You did well. And the second one goes out and he manages to increase it from two talents to one. And he comes back and he, the other one says, no, 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 you did good. You keep that. And the third one buried it in the ground because he thought whatever you um, mm -hmm. sow and you haven't earned, you're going to take it back from me anyway. So I'm just going to keep it safe and then I'll give it back to you. And the allegory of the story is actually meant to be that we as individuals who have gifts, gifts to share with the world... If we do not share them, those gifts diminish. But if we share them, they multiply. Mm -hmm. And that's where she went mm -hmm. sort of sideways with Earthseed, is that she was trying to bury her talent of sewing into Acorn when it was never meant to be buried mm -hmm. within Acorn. And she still knew this. She just didn't act on it. Mm -hmm. She had this feeling and all these all these desires and it's it's so tragic that she had to go through what she did but you can understand in the direction of the book how she got stuck in her cozy safe community and and it took the destruction and probably almost in part you know the 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 stealing of her child and the search for her child to kind of get it back on track very rufus whalen like because when you think about Tom Whalen versus his son as slaveholders. Tom Whalen was, for all intents and purposes, he was quite brutal. But if he gave you his word or told an enslaved person that he would do something, 
he was responsible enough to follow through. Rufus, not so much. But Rufus, as a slaveholder, was in some ways more hands-off. It was as though he, he was sleepwalking into this cozy life that he had been brought up in without ever questioning whether what that life was and how he afforded that life. And so it was simply that I own these enslaved individuals. I am the slaveholder and this is my life. And so we're just going to continue putting one foot in front of the other without thinking about it. And you have some of the same things happening in Acorn where Lauren's like, I'm in this Acorn. I founded my Earthseed community. I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm not right now feeling pushed or rushed to share that talent more widely. I'm willing to just settle. How often do we do that in life? <laughs> I think settling is, is very easy for, for us as humans. And also in this day and age, the day, which was, which brought me like to like the VR and the dream masks and talents, distraction, like we are very easily distracted. And it was so interesting how um, Lauren's daughter, Lark, you know, she became a dream mask creator and you hear these stories about the, the woman that Lauren ended up meeting and became kind of her first disciple, <laughs> air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and her, her, her mother's story, how she just lived within her VR room, her virtual reality room. I'm going to like move through and we're, let's discuss some of the more disturbing factors and their, mm-hmm. the prescience, I guess, with which we have observed these things today. So there was this point where she talks about education and she says, even the pretense of having an educated populace was ending. Politicians shook their heads and said sadly that universal education was a failed experiment. Some companies began to educate the children of their workers, at least well enough to enable them to become their next generation of workers. And then she goes on to say, with regards to the parents, because it's now their responsibility to educate their children. If they were alcoholics or addicts or prostitutes, or if they had all they could do just to feed feed their kids and maybe keep some sort of roof over their heads. That was just too bad. And no one thought about what kind of society we were building with such stupid decisions. People who could afford to educate their children in private schools were glad to see the government finally stop wasting their tax money educating other people's children. They imagined that a country filled with poor, uneducated, unemployable people somehow wouldn't hurt them. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I have to listen to people tell me they don't want to pay taxes. (laughs) I... That is hilarious and so awesome. Yeah, educate and like even just drawing a parallel kind of back to to Kindred, right? You know, so many of the slaves didn't know how to read or write. Her going back in time and knowing how to read and write, she could write these little tickets for for people that allowed them to to travel essentially because if you didn't have one for, you know, you were 
kind of screwed. <laughs> well, you were just screwed in general back then. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, like it's so important to educate and even how you educate too. Like, I can't even remember, but there was a documentary that I read on the U.S. education system and how in many states it's just so outdated and it's it's right? a bit of a mess. Not that ours is better. I have friends with their kids in private schools and they think this is, the, you know, the bomb diggity. I'm like, I went to public school. Mm. I thought it was really good. I went to both separate, you know, we have the separate system here and public. I've gone to both. I thought they were quite strong. Mm -hmm. I never threw out my mm -hmm. education. I'm not saying it was perfect. There are a lot of things that if I ever got my hands on curriculums, mm -hmm. I would change, including putting James Baldwin Definitely. and Octavia Butler into the reading list for high school. <laughs> yes. Hell yeah. I like... I read Kite Runner, and I actually yeah. feel like yeah. that was a pretty great one for school. You're high. Um, but this, yeah, this book is yeah. just so. It should it be. It should be in there. 100%. 100%. Like, and it's, I feel like it's it's more modern than some of the books that are currently there. Like, I, like a lot of those books, they're, they're great. Like, um, but yeah, the, the more that they get dated, the more far away from, current culture that they get I sometimes wonder if they're as relatable to the general population I feel like these books are still very relatable even though the dates are like it's future and it's currently well, our dates consider what we had to but, read in high school great expectations did you even make it through that book and I'm mm. I'm saying that as someone who absolutely loves Dickens I loved A Tale of Two Cities I did not enjoy great expectations and there was another one that we had to read of his. I can't remember which one it was now. Uh, but we didn't have to read Bleak House. I mean, this is probably a good thing because Bleak House is a challenging book to go through. But my point is that there are so that many contemporary novels that really desperately make more sense in those curriculums than some of the stuff we were forced to read. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well... I actually really like To Kill a Mockingbird. And like I said, I still think Kite Runner was an awesome addition to the curriculum. But that was a, that was a modern book that they brought in. You were lucky. Like, they should, yeah, they should bring in more modern yeah. books. Because I, we got The Awakening. And as I said, I loved A Tale of Two Cities. But there was not a single Shakespeare that I really enjoyed. They didn't do much ado about nothing. I spent four years with Hamlet, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, and King Lear or something. I, much ado about nothing. Okay, I can't. I'll just be honest. I probably wouldn't have forgiven them that either. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I like that play, but maybe I wouldn't have forgiven them that either. I think one play in four years—that is sufficient. Thank you, Shakespeare. Totally. Like, just to divvy it up, because there's just there's so much there's so much literature out there, right? Yeah. It's just an ever growing, an ever growing amount. Uh, anyways, oh. I can understand rewriting the curriculum is, would just be, I imagine, a headache. Get some of the history edits going there too, right? But we digress. Yes. We digress. 
So that was one of the points that really struck me was this idea that you could possibly take a, a population that is not educated and that it's not going to harm you. Because even today we have these conversations around defund the police and people struggle with this language around defund the police. And I understand it. It is very, it is jarring language. And I think in some ways it's meant to be that and it maybe should be that way. But when you say defund healthcare and defund education, no one bats an eye. And I sit there and I think, well, if we're not sleepwalking and just putting one foot in front of the other, and we then think to ourselves, what kind of society do I want to live in? What kind of society are we putting one foot in front of the other and marching towards? Where do we put our money into based on that society? Because if that society is couched in terms of we're going to focus on punishment, then yes, keep funding the police because that is where we're going. But if the society is about having an educated population that is able to step back and contribute and find purpose and critically think and analyze what they're getting from these technology systems that are feeding them down sort of spiraling um, wormholes, what sort of society does that look like? Uh, it's so bleak. Like, and, it, and I mean, you look at the news nowadays, particularly with, with COVID happening in, in the U.S. and in terms of like, just not even there being um, a healthcare system provided for a lot of people. Like the, the poor get poor. It's, it's just, it's just like a, it's a fact, right? These people are being hospitalized and they don't have healthcare and then they've got this massive medical bill and now they're in debt. And it's, it's an endless cycle that you just can't even get to. And talking about these, these corporate societies that or these corporate neighborhoods that pop up in parable of the talents where you have this debt that you can't even escape. And it's like, an yeah, it's almost like an indentured slavery. It's just, Yes. Beauty. Yeah. We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> so remember I said earlier, we're going to talk about that slavery aspect in the corporate cities because she brings right. up the corporate cities in Parable of the Sower when Joanne's family goes out there and it is this she does. spiraling indentured servitude. In addition to the other locations where the sharers are, because we should also talk about the hyper empathy uh, and the sharing. Um, where the sharers are, which are actual slave holdings. So it's almost as though they've taken those corporate cities to another level. Can you think of a modern day example of a corporate city? Of the fact that they exist in our time period. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't even think to Google this. So is there a no, I don't city? even there know. There probably if... is. <laughs> I don't even know if you could Google this, but let's think for a moment about um, Portland and Seattle, or even a few years ago when a load of cities were bidding on Amazon's second headquarters. And oh, the state yeah. of those cities right now are in so, in so many ways, they're just a little too similar for comfort to what Octavia is describing in her books. Because many of these people, they may appear to be well off, but they're living on debt. And even here within our own city, we're nowhere near being exactly a corporate city, but we certainly are a natural resource city 
And we see too many people who are making ridiculous salaries who are also living in debt. And it's that debt servitude and debt slavery that she refers to. How did you feel reading those pieces? That's actually really, that's really interesting. Um, Especially just going back to the, the normalization of things too. Debt is so normal. Like, especially if you're a (laughs) post-secondary educated person, Um, which I'm like most of the people that I am around still working off student loans. Like it's, there isn't a single person who is debt. And like, it was so funny when Henry and I were buying our house too. He's just like, and we're officially in debt. Woo. (laughs) And you have economists who will try and, convince you that student loans and mortgages are good debt. Yeah. I am still remain unconvinced. (laughs) (laughs) It's stressful, especially like, um, yeah, especially when you're thinking of like people getting laid off and like jobs being difficult right now and, and you have a mortgage to pay and you're like, well, great. This is going to be a very difficult situation if anything happens. <laughs> anyway, so we've talked about that. I'm going to read a little piece that she wrote here that somewhat seems to allude to Andrew Jarrett. This is in chapter 11 of The Talents, where she writes Earth Seed, the Books of the Living. Choose your leaders with wisdom and forethought. To be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears. To be led by a fool is to be led by the opportunists who control the fool. To be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen. To be led by a liar is to ask to be told lies. To be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those you love into slavery. I'm sorry, I stopped. That moment, like the thing that just like awes me is that Octavia Butler just like created this pretty amazing (laughs) set of stances for a book, and and they're so eloquent and like they pack a punch. Yes, it's it. Every time I read one, I'm like, wow, she just like wrote this. And she wrote this in 9398. Yeah. This is the, sorry, the Sower and the Talents, 9398. Uh, Kindred was written in 79. So these books yeah. are not that old. <laughs> they're not that old. And they're, they're like, yeah, they're so amazing. Oh my it's, gosh. So that, my heart. That quote I, yeah. Yes, that yes. quote I absolutely loved. It was, yeah. I just. So true. Exactly. I just felt like there was so much truth in that quote that I don't feel that we need to embellish it any further. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. not at all. It, Particularly with the last leader. Yes, in the U.S. Been, and then some. Yeah. 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 It's one of that I think, but that maybe ties into what we were talking about earlier with Joanne and the willingness to bury your head in the sand or with Rufus and at times Lauren with wanting to put one foot in front of the other without ever thinking about the consequences of it. Because I was recently reading some 
letters in the Atlantic. And basically this journalist had asked in 2015 Trump supporters why they were supporting Trump, how they felt about him, etc. And he went back and asked the same group of people, why are you supporting Trump? Do you still support him? How do you feel post-insurrection that happened earlier this year? And one guy wrote back and he said he's deeply uncomfortable with calling himself a Republican and that even though he supported Trump initially, he certainly didn't vote for him the second time around because although he supported the policies that Trump was putting forward, he did not feel comfortable with what he, and I quote, <laughs> termed as the racist, misogynistic, and xenophobic language that came out of President Trump's mouth at every second turn. And I thought, mm. oh, so you noticed, but you still <clears throat> feel, felt that this was who you wanted to take you in whichever direction. And so when I think about um, that quote of, you know, choosing your leader with forethought and care, it, and it also goes back to what sort of society do you want to build? What, and I don't feel that many people sit down and think about the life, the society that we live in today and what they really want that society to look at. And then mm. individually and collectively on both levels, take responsibility for our actions in moving the trajectory towards that society that we want to live in. Oh, 100%. I mean, even in that quote of whoever you just stated, like there's a person who actually had like an, an identity crisis. Well, I don't really relate to everything that this person says, but I just cannot call myself a Republican. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm going to vote for him anyways. Well, given, yeah, we can't vote there anyways. Yeah. Neither of us. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, we can't. But but that's that's so interesting, right? Where your your self identity plays a part when it really it really should be more up to a a collective identity. Like, okay, yeah. what's what's the greater good? Not like I really don't want to be seen as the person who is a con I guess in our place like a, a conservative. So I'm never going to invite vote for a conservative government or or what have you right yeah. or liberal or and ndp it's just it's, it, it's interesting that our own personal identities can hinder um a better decision and i think that comes out a lot in these books too in a really interesting way too like just the the safety that we feel in our own little like egos yeah yeah our little our acorns. little acorns <laughs> indeed oh my gosh <laughs> i just love that she called her first community acorn it was very cute and even more so that the the christian america had viewed her cult as a tree worship i was like how misinformed do you have to be <laughs> Those tree worshiping oh my horns, like okay. So I'm like, we should finish wrap her up uh, here. Um, that's so wow. interesting. Let's just wrap her up by finishing with the mm -hmm. hyper empathy and the sharers. So Lauren is a hyper empath as a result of her mother having taken a drug yes. before her birth, and some 
people become their, I guess, collectively called sharers in that they share physical pain and pleasure with people if they see it occur. And, right? Because initially you kind of think, oh, this is terrifying. Everybody should be hyper empaths. Yeah. And then she gets, and then a bunch of sharers get raped. And you're just like, oh, God. Because it's pleasure and pain. <laughs> so what a mind. Am I allowed to say fuck? <laughs> what a mind fuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Hyper empathy. Very interesting. And I think it was something that we had talked about once before when we were oh, yeah. both kind of in the midst of reading it. Where... Like, people would still find a way to get around it. Right. Because it's only if you see them that you can feel their pain. And what was interesting is I didn't think about this initially until later in the talents where she mentioned that men with hyper-empathy tended to Mm -hmm. feel more vulnerable. And I, my concern at that point then became how much more dangerous did that make them? Because... If you think about her earlier on in the sewer, when she's, she hides her hyper empathy because that's how she's been raised and she's been told she has to hide it. And a lot of them are told that. Do you remember when her dad takes her out shooting? Because even if an animal is in pain, she will feel it and it can take her down. She will go down with the same pain. She shoots to kill. So can you imagine then what a society looks like on that more disturbing side? if we're a society of hyper empaths. And it was at that moment that I thought, mm, I'm not so certain this yeah, is a gift. Like to, to fear what other people are feeling. Like, cause a lot of like the, the emotional damage I think that comes particularly is with our society and, and the way that we've kind of structured things, especially with gender roles is a, a lot of men don't feel like they are allowed to feel or a lot to voice feelings. So now not only do you have a f- like a fear of your own feelings, but you have to start fearing everyone else's. And just as we were kind of yes. talking about in the um, election of Jared and bad decisions, like a lot of life-saving decisions come, um, can like fear can protect you from those. But let's be honest, we're in a, a decently cushy society where our base basic necessities are for the most part, if you're somewhat privileged, (laughs) um, met. So fear-based decisions aren't often great ones nowadays. And I think Jarrett rose to power in these books because it was a terrifying time and people just wanted someone who promised to clean up a mess so they didn't have to look at it, so they didn't have to deal with it. And that was that's scary (laughs) oh my gosh wow you know what we could go on about this for a whole other episode yeah we should probably just we're gonna cap it here but wow there's just so so much in these three tiny books they're not even long long books. books and they're like crazy loaded yes like no wonder it's so if ever anyone's wondering why Octavia Butler is worshipped by the knowledgeable, I feel like these three books really mm-hmm. do encapsulate it. So really fast, I'm going to ask 
you okay. a few questions, and these first few I'll answer with you, but then I'm going to answer ask you some questions oh, cool. that are just for you. <laughs> so <laughs> first off, which of the three really cracked you open? Mind, heart, or spirit? Um, which of the three really cracked me open? Oh, man. I think I enjoyed Kindred the most, but I think in terms of like delving deep emotionally, um, Parable of the Talents was probably the most impactful. Yeah. I would say Talents too. Second question. If you're going to put an Octavia Butler book into someone else's hands, which one? Yeah, you know what? Just because I think it's like the most gripping and the fastest in terms of reading, Kindred. But I hope it would be a segue to Earthseed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just 100% second that answer because I'm with you there. Okay. Um, have you ever wanted to time travel? And Hell if no. so, where? I'll go to the future if I can. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? No, no, no future, no yeah. past. I'm staying right here true, in the present. True that. I'm present good. works. I'm happy here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. This one's just for you. Tell me as in as short a sentence as you can about the world we live in today. And tell me about the world that you want to live in. And I admit, I'm totally pulling this from Brene Brown's Barack Obama podcast and from his book, Mm. Promised Land. But I feel like that is a very apt question for what we've discussed in this Um, Diverse. Our world is so infinitely diverse that I don't even think I have the capability of comprehending how diverse our world our, our world is uh i th- think i would love to live in a world that could celebrate diversity but still be unified right but Challenging, that's eh? a pretty open statement and i don't even know if i could make it more succinct because there's a lot of issues that are around and in that so yeah I would like to see though um like a a lot more emphasis on education and even involvement of like personal development like we teach children a lot but we don't teach them a lot in terms about like life personal skills so right that that would be a huge thing I think I love it. So these last few questions are just to wrap things up. Uh, which podcasts are you listening to these days? Like the main podcast you can't let go of. Oh, um, Myths and Legends. Oh, Myths and Legends. It's this, I've just started it. Um, it's this guy and he, I can't remember his name right now, but he goes through and he just goes and tells you a little bit about like all the myths and legends that exist within our our world as society from multiple different cultures it's so interesting because like some of the medieval ones like around king arthur like not they just they don't even make sense there's no rhyme or reason to them it's yeah it's 
very but and then um i really like uh shameless sex and uh revisionist history actually by malcolm gladwell i really enjoy too i'm just yeah there's like a million other ones but i'll let you ask more questions (laughs) (laughs) um so if you're not reading what dominates your time these days and writing yeah nice which author is your go-to and who would you recommend we cover next my go-to in terms of like fantasy stuff probably alona andrews in terms of sociology i've not read a book that i didn't like by malcolm gladwell i haven't read all of his books but i've read most of them and then in terms of personal development ooh, that's too tough yeah okay that's okay we're that's enough all right um use artists you're currently enjoying rue pains nice i'll look them up i will look them up if you were to choose an emoji to represent Octavia Butler, yeah. what would it be? Oh, I don't know. That's too tough. The tree emoji? <laughs> okay. I feel like that would be apt because a lot of the book was about climate yeah. change in the end. The, so the much books. of it. <laughs> Final question. What is your favorite seasonal food? So we're in winter right now. What is your go-to dish for winter? I'm like any potato dish. When I'm in winter, I crave carbs. I'm like, like make a, like a nice potato soup or <laughs> some kind nice. of, like, oh, give me all the potatoes. I must have some, must have some Irish or something in my background. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Oh my gosh. Thank you so Thank much you. for agreeing to read yeah. these books and to come on here oh today. Thank you for introducing me to Octavia E. Butler because, wow, what an amazing author. So amazing. Right? Yeah. I, I feel like right there we've cracked our minds, our hearts, and our spirits in Definitely. one go. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice. Well, okay. thank you for choosing to get cracked with me. You are so welcome. <laughs> And for anyone who doesn't know, our logo was actually designed by Sarah. Yay! Um, so I absolutely loved the inspiration behind that and everything. So thank you again so much for all of your support. I am so grateful beyond words. <laughs> okay. Oh, you are so welcome. Thanks for listening to Cracked for Readers by Readers. You can find us on Instagram at cracked underscore for RBR and email us at cracked for rbr at gmail.com. Cracked is about creating a community of readers dedicated to a deeper dive into a diversity of authors. Ultimately, our vision for this community is one predicated on kindness, inclusivity, and love. Cracked for Readers by Readers is produced with thanks to Jason McKay of JMK Audio Productions and myself, Monique Minviel. Get Cracked. <laughs>